0: Broward County's troubled school system has a new sheriff. US inflation is down except in South Florida and a key Miami archaeological site gets some protection. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host Tim Paget. In the next hour we'll talk with Broward's new school superintendent Peter Licata who assumed his post this week. His main task pulling Florida's second largest school system and the country's sixth largest out of its dysfunctional funk. We'll also look at why South Florida's economy is hot, but maybe too hot, especially when it comes to housing costs. And we'll look at efforts to preserve an important Miami archeological site and what it says about our ancient past. All this coming up right after the news. Tim Paget, Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, benvindo. This past year, the Broward County school system, Florida's second largest and America's sixth largest, has been a dysfunctional roller coaster. Last summer, a statewide grand jury investigation led to the removal of four Broward school board members. School Superintendent Vicki Cartwright was fired, rehired, and then left again. Most recently, the board secretly decided to require clear backpacks at schools to improve school safety, but reversed itself last month after angry public backlash. Enter Peter Licata, Broward County's new school superintendent. The Broward native and longtime Palm Beach County school official finally had his three-year contract approved this week and is now on the job. And that job looks daunting. Licata faces declining enrollment, staff shortages, bureaucratic waste, aging infrastructure and the lingering effects of the 2018 Parkland school massacre as he tries to put Broward schools back on track. Even so, he's pledged to make Broward an A-rated district. What do you think about Broward's choice for a transformational new schools leader? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Dr. Peter Licata now joins me to talk about the challenges he has ahead of him. Also joining our conversation is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you all hear me? We can. Thank you. Dr. Lakata, I'd like to start by asking you about what may have been the biggest thing you did not get in your contract, and that was stronger job protection. You wanted an agreement that would take a make it so that a super majority of six of the nine Broward County School Board members would be required to remove you instead of a simple majority of five. Why did you feel that was an especially important point in the negotiations?
1: so it was an unselfish reason for the most part Uh, i feel like if we're going to attract some uh, national talent to here and make us as as marketable uh, marketable as possible uh, one of the things we have to show is a a commitment to the superintendent and some stability and to get those folks that are from around the country that know that Broward county is a great opportunity it's a great place to be uh, it's the state of florida uh, that their superintendent is is protected a little bit so it wasn't so much about me. It was more about what I can do and what I can recruit. Um, I understand the board's perspective on this. I knew it was a touch and go simply because it's just not something they've done historically. Right. But as you can see, uh, I've accepted that. We'll move through. And I've asked them to give it a uh, friendly consideration if we have a successful first, second year type thing. Mm-hmm. I think that's important for uh, us attracting and keeping talent here as well. Right. So it was more about other people, not not myself but sort of
0: an effort to build a firewall let's say against some of that chaos that the, the district has experienced so much of lately
1: so yeah it was uh, you know superintendents around the country you know, usually ask for that and, and some do and some get it some don't uh, okay and uh, we're, we're we're sure we're 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 going to move forward with it. Mm-hmm.
0: Now only so much of the job of superintendent is actually running the district. The rest is politics, frankly, and, and managing your relationship with the board. How will you approach working with the board now Now that uh, you're on?
1: So um, I, I'm going to disagree with you on, on, on that uh, question in in a sense, simply because right. it isn't just politics. Um, it, there is politics involved and, and anyone who knows anything about education and being superintendent or or large counties like this it is very political yes so you're correct in that part but you know a superintendent also has to get their hands dirty in the academics they have to get their hands dirty in the facilities and 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 these bond programs and i think that might have been some of the the problem we 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 weren't active enough in in this office to get down in there and get dirty um i've done so many roles as my previous in in my previous uh life down up in palm beach and i think it, it it prepares me for that and and i do not want this to be an office job it won't be an office job and yes i do have some uh, formidable uh political uh uh agendas that i have to work through but you know what uh, it's going to be about students and we're going to work through that so okay. you'll see a visible superintendent good point mm-hmm. duly noted
2: and dr Lakata, this was your first week on the job and one of the first things that you did was go to the 1200 building at Marjorie stoneman douglas the building where the massacre was carried out why did you decide to go there?
1: You, that that is never going to leave us, as much as we want to try and erase it, or pretend it didn't happen, or just move on past it. You can't, um, and it's something we need to learn about every single day and be reminded of. And I needed to feel that. I needed the families. I needed the community to know I was there. I saw what happened in that aftermath of that awful tragedy of the murder of those seventeen children, and the seventeen or and adults, and the injury of the other seventeen. I had to be there that is a support for them it's also a reminder of why I need to make sure schools are as safe as possible, and this is the part that's not political, this is the part of getting your hands dirty and saying we need to do this more in our schools and I need to see it with my own with my own eyes.
2: Mm -hmm. And one of the challenges moving forward, with the district is handling the demolition of the building and the memorial that will come later, how will you approach that process which we know is, is so sensitive for the families and survivors.
1: I've I've said from the start that's that's a process. I'm going to stand back and and nod my head. Yes, a lot of uh, there's a lot of folks involved in that that really need to have a bigger uh, say than me. Um, we we cannot get involved in discussing or arguing over any of that. We need to support the community and the families on on what what's going to be best. The demolition is a constant discussion we have some uh, workarounds right now especially with the recent uh judge ruling that they can mm-hmm. do the reenactment we'll work through that but we also want to make sure that when that is uh raised raised with the d uh, z mm-hmm. we want to make sure that it's it doesn't compound any other problems we want to make sure it's it's healthy it's safe it's a time when students aren't there uh, i've wrecked three or four buildings five buildings, six buildings over my career it's messy and you cannot have students nearby and the dust takes a while to settle and who knows what's in that dust. So we got to address that the correct way without compounding any, any more issues there.
0: Dr. Licata, beyond Parkland, what are your top priorities for the district? I know, for example, that your contract provides a big bonus if you somehow fix the SMART program, the $800 million capital improvement project whose costs have just spun out of control. What else
1: along those lines? uh that's a big one yes uh you know we got to make it an a that that really is a priority the, the students the teachers the communities everyone the staff administrators they work very very hard um there is a a, a a just a great feeling when you when you walk out the door and you know you're working for an a district that means everybody's in that district it's not an a school and a c school it's we are in a district so that's that's one of the key things i want to make uh Broward is, is, is competitive with salaries, and I think you're going to see something in the next few weeks where we really are probably the best option for teachers regarding salaries. But remember, that's also a working environment. So we got to make a super uh, positive, focused culture that supports folks, and, and it's, a, it's embedded with success and positivity and making sure we, we support our schools from this building.
2: Mm -hmm. And Dr. Lacata, I mean, we're we're hearing the positive message from you, but certainly in, you know, the recent past and going back years in the district, there has been this dysfunction, mismanagement, and at times corruption uh, within the district. You know, many superintendents before you have promised change and many have disappointed the community. How will you be different?
1: Well, I I can tell you that... um a couple things pop into my head of me that i've never been unsuccessful in in a role as an educator and i don't plan on starting now Mm -hmm. Um, my history is very boring uh i I follow rules i follow laws i want to be the model for that Um, i there's no compromise here Uh, one of the things i've said to the board members is i will not take a job for if i have to uh compromise uh, my value system and my value system right now is pretty high and i don't want to uh, even begin to think that that would ever be compromised in any way so if i model that and move through that quite well um you're going to see you're going to see a different uh, approach you're going to see a different broward county public schools and as many as uh, the many of the news stations reported during that contract negotiation how it was three and a half hours i feel like 10 folks walked out of that the nine board members and myself and we all felt like we won and that's the way we need to walk out of that room every time. We have to have good discourse. We have to understand where where we're going. But there's a give and take, and let's all walk out with our heads up high, knowing what we want, and we're doing, we're moving forward with good stuff. So, I know it's pie in the sky, it's a honeymoon. But if you've uh, talked to anybody that knows me from years and years ago, uh, that is who I am. You know, my my favorite slogan is, uh, if I'm complaining, I'm lying. Because things are great. I'm Tim Padgett.
0: You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking to new Broward County School Superintendent Peter Licata. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN.
2: And uh, we're a little over a month away from the first day of school, Superintendent. How many staff vacancies does Broward have, and, and will the district be ready in August?
1: so as of Wednesday morning we had 362 um, teacher vacancies obviously that's a couple more hundred in bus and and cafeteria Mm -hmm. uh, all other supporting services you know that's why we have contract services to help uh, reduce that number and make sure we have a student or adults or professionals in front of our kids we have a job fair on the 22nd Uh, I will be there just because I need to show that I am out there uh, you know shaking the trees doing whatever we can to get folks here again we have peripheries that have a school districts to the north and south Mm -hmm. and drive from deerfield to boca is is five minutes to drive from you know uh south broward and hallandale to miami gardens is is a quick ride as well so we want to go the other way we want we want those folks coming to us so if i'm out there and we're out there and we're producing a great product which we we do um we'll get there it's not going to happen overnight but the world is experienced as short of the teacher so Uh, We're we're fighting with everyone else for the same thing.
0: Now, along along with staff shortage, in a way, you're also facing student shortage. Some board members have proposed closing about 35 schools over the next few years due to declining enrollment. Do you think that's needed? And how would you decide which
1: schools to close? So... um closing schools is the hardest thing you'll ever do as an educator it's just a very difficult thing especially if there's historic pieces to that and as part of the community Mm -hmm. uh 35 is a really big number Uh, remember that schools are empty for several reasons you have to go in and look at a deep dive first and say what is it and ask the community go to the community and say what is it is it the leader is it the school grade is it the school condition is the community not having children anymore to where it's becoming an adult community and they're not just children in that area can we move it to a k-8 to help bring back our maybe our students we've lost to other entities we have that new uh, statute where uh, folks are allowed to go ahead and take their eighty two hundred dollars and, and choose what school they go to if it's a private school mm-hmm. or uh, that so that's another battle so there are a lot of battles and i know that when you open the show sir uh you gave all the negative factors. The good thing is you didn't include the uh, locusts and the plague. And hopefully that's not coming.
2: <laughs> we saw the floods, though, so we'll see. Uh, but uh, across the country, Dr. Lakata, you know, the pandemic has erased years of, of student achievement by some, some metrics. And recent state test scores uh, showed that just about half, 50 to 60% of Broward students are at or above grade level in math mm-hmm. and language arts. Now, that's above uh, the statewide average, but still striking. What is your plan to catch up from COVID?
1: So the numbers are great. I, I like what you're saying. You know, uh, I talked to commissioner Diaz yesterday for a, a brief moment and, you know, his first thing is we're at 43%. We got to get that. We got to get change That, you know, some mm-hmm. people think that's a rise. It is a rise. And I've said this before, Hey, we, we grew, we got better. That's great. But I'm not sure any team that wins 50% of the games is really happy. No. And We're talking children. We're not talking games. We're not talking widgets. We're talking children, our future. So COVID really hit the, the students. it, it, it it, that matters in a sense of the gap and closing the gap you know the resources that children have we're able to sometimes overcome that not having a teacher in front of them some various reasons or means because of resources the children we've been working on closing that gap got hit the hardest so now we got to double time our efforts and i know we have to be more focused we have to be incredibly lean and we have to put our resources in those areas in those schools by not taking away from others but the equitable piece of this is making sure that we're getting everyone a chance to get to the finish line that finish line that we all have. And that's high school graduation with uh, potentially some acceleration courses, college credits under their belt, or industry certification so they can get into the workforce.
2: Mm-hmm. And on a separate issue, Dr. Lacata, the Broward School District did not offer sex education to students this past school year, in part due to new state laws restricting how LGBTQ issues can be talked about in the classroom. Will you commit to bringing a comprehensive sex ed curriculum back to the district?
1: Um, Kate, I'm a little concerned that you were looking at my email and my computer was up because that's what I was working on as you guys were calling (laughs) in. Um, So I think that answers your question. Um, We we are going to be bringing back um, some of those items. We also know that there's a a lot of parental rights out there. Uh, Listen, when parents are involved with children's education, the child is guaranteed almost to be successful. Uh, we want parents involved, and and we also want to say, you know, if, a, if if a child's being taught something, a parent should have a right to see what that curriculum is. And if it's something that's, that's like sex ed and we look at it, we also have to look at the idea of parental permission. We want to follow the law. We want to expose our students to things that they may not get at home or may not have the resources to get. Sure. But we also want to make sure the parents are in concert with us, not in competition or in conflict with us. And that's something that you have to work through in the middle. We listen to the outliers about this battle and, and such. It is what it is, and we'll work through it. But we don't want anything inappropriate in front of children without parents knowing it. We want to make sure that it's it meets the standards and it meets the state guidelines and the board approves it. And And it sounds very simple, and it is. We just can't let the outliers confuse us or, or, or you know, conflate the issue.
2: Well, and of course, that's one of the most contentious issues facing public schools right now is uh, parental involvement and who deems what is appropriate for for kids? You know, the state is continuing to restrict how schools can address issues like race and identity and history. Again, around these ideas of appropriateness, how will you support students and faculty as well, um, ensuring that they're free from discrimination within these constraints, both from parents and and from state leaders?
1: So, I can control what I can control. Uh, we have to follow statute. We have to follow law. And doesn't mean we're not going to be very active in Tallahassee. I uh, I know that that's going to be something we're going to work on. And we have, you know, three really strong counties that are very similar between Dade, mm-hmm. uh, Palm Beach, and Broward. And we're going to work together and, and, and maybe give some of our weight up there and try and, and look forward and say this is not. Good for education this is not good for children this is what's happening in schools we need you to look at this as well yeah. um if that works that's great otherwise we have to control what we control uh, can control i have started a new slogan here uh, a new motto and it's on our stationery it's on mine at least already it says every one the letter one counts because if you watch the interviews kate and i know you did um i refer to every child as counting as one child mm-hmm. not more or not less providing the services to make sure they're whole at all times, whether it be ESE services, whether it be speech and language services, whether it be language skills. We want to make sure that every student that walks through the door, we see as a child, one child, and the next one, one child, regardless of where they're from, what they look like, what color their hair is or their skin is, what religion they are. We want to make sure that we are in charge of educating children the way we're supposed to. That is our number one goal. And that is our number one uh, priority.
0: Dr. Licata, just finally, in the 30 seconds we have left, in the wake of the school board's clear backpack debacle, what what do you think the district should be doing to improve school security in Broward? What, for example, did Palm Beach County do while you were there, like metal detectors that you think Broward should do? And again, we only have about 30 seconds if you could could address that. So
1: I'll make this quick. Uh, Anytime you can add a layer of defense for safety is great. There is no one answer school safety evolves much like a a computer virus and once you solve it there's a new one out there Uh, but more importantly if we can start looking at some pilot programs like metal detectors excuse me i'm sorry metal detectors you know we did a school by school clear backpacks if if the principals uh felt like it was important or the staff felt so We're going to continue with this. We're going to continue and and continue being at the front forefront of that, especially being Broward is a focal point for that. Well, we'll have to
0: leave it there. Dr. Licata, thank you very much. Dr. Peter Licata is Broward County's new school superintendent. Kate Payne is WLRN's education reporter. Thank you both for the great
1: conversation. Thank (laughs) Thank, Thank you both. Thank you very much.
0: Still to come, why it's costing so much to live in our sunshine economy. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Padgett. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The big U.S. economic headline this week is, while we're suffering record climate heat, we're finally seeing a cooling of inflation. A pronounced cooling, says the New York Times. Last month, consumer prices rose only 3% for the year. That's a big drop from the peak inflation rate of 9% that was hammering the country last summer. And yet, Why does inflation in South Florida still feel as hot as the asphalt in a public's parking lot right now? In fact, the consumer price index here continues to hover around 9%. Nationally, the price of a single family home is down 3% compared to a year ago, but in Miami-Dade County, it's up 8%. The good news is that while South Florida's economy looks more expensive than the rest of the country, it also looks stronger. The national unemployment rate is 3.7%. Here, it's 2.4%. So how are you dealing with the good, the bad, and the ugly of our sunshine economy? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. If that term, sunshine economy, sounds familiar, it's because for the past decade, it was one of WLRN's most popular programs. It was hosted by award-winning business journalist Tom Hudson, who's also a former host of this show. Tom has returned to WLRN as our senior economics editor. He joins me in the studio now to help us make sense of South Florida's high cost of living. Tom, it's great to have you back. It
3: is a thrill to be back on South Florida Roundup with you, Tim. Congratulations.
0: No, thank you. You wrote a great analysis piece for WLRN.org this week. And, and let's cut to the chase. I just mentioned that nationally, last month's inflation rate was only three percent. Yeah. Meaning the US is inching closer to that two percent yep. target, yep. right? Yep, yep. But in Miami, the consumer price index sits at about Seven percent. Yeah. yeah. In, in South Florida, you point out the so-called core consumer inflation rate, which is prices for everything except energy and food, is still ten point five percent in South Florida. What is driving all this more than anything else, It's Tom. really
3: unbelievable to see the difference between the consumer price inflation numbers that we're experiencing here in South Florida compared to the nation right. as a whole. Now, certainly, you know, taking Miami as an example compared to the rest of the nation perhaps isn't fair to the rest of the nation because of how special we are here. Mm-hmm. But boy, nobody's envious of a 9 or 10% core inflation rate that we're experiencing here. In a word, why? Housing. Yeah. Shelter. Uh, now, how that is measured in these inflation numbers. We can get into a little bit of the weeds because I think it's important. but that that housing uh, uh, expense that we're experiencing here, both the cost of housing and rental, that explains, uh, almost all of the difference of the inflation, the high inflation that we're still experiencing in Miami compared to the rest of the nation.
0: And what is causing such a big disparity for aspiring homeowners and renters here yeah. compared to the rest of the country?
3: Well, similar to the rest of the country and particularly uh, vibrant job markets. You mentioned the really low unemployment rate here. Yeah. Uh, Florida continues to attract people moving in, 1,000 people a day. Uh, and, and about a third of those are coming to Palm Beach, Broward, And Miami-Dade. So a significant number of people moving in demand for housing. And, you know, while there's plenty of construction going on, it's not single family homes that are just popping up out of the sawgrass like they were in the 60s and 70s. And so high demand, low supply that equals higher prices. And the fact prices. that this
0: region is just a perpetual in-migration machine, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that would explain then why our real estate market remains overheated, even amid decidedly higher mortgage interest rates. Mortgage
3: interest rates, right. So about a third of the market is still cash, which is you know cash buyers, which are not affected of course by the higher interest rates. But those higher interest rates also mean there are fewer buyers who are able to afford homes that continue to escalate in price. So now you've got fewer homes for sale The demand is still there, but the new home buyer, the first-time home buyer, is really locked out of this market, if they could even find a home in their price range. And so
0: a big follow-up question then is, how high would inflation be here without housing costs included, do you
3: think? Less than 1%. Wow. Right? I mean, that shows you how significant the housing component is. Now, when the national inflation numbers were released on Wednesday— The Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics, which produces the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, at 3% said uh, 70% of the inflationary pressures were coming from housing market nationwide. But when you take a look at the difference between a 7% inflation rate here in Miami, and if you strip out housing, not that anybody needs housing, but of Mm -hmm. course we all do, but you strip that out, it's less than 1%. That shows you how influential these shelter prices, these home prices and rental prices are.
0: Well, James in Fort Lauderdale thinks that locals are being priced out by newcomers. James, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. What uh, what are you getting at specifically there?
4: No, in all honesty, you're 100% right about it. It's perfectly put. They are getting priced out, and it's by design. It's by design, and it's becoming an elitist state, and that's a good and a bad thing because at the end of the day if you measure up it's fine but at the end if you don't measure up you you're kind of forced to move so it's either you evolve or you have to leave
0: All Right. okay so tom you know you also point out some the good news is that south florida's job market is still strong in yeah. spite of the inflation yeah. and the high interest rates our unemployment rate here is more than a point lower than the country's as a
3: whole what's driving that good news hospitality is driving that healthcare is driving that and as we mentioned uh, the continued immigration of population that means there's going to be a continued increase in demand for services to serve that increasing population and so that job market has been uh, continuously hot as it repairs itself from the pandemic. I think the other piece about the job market that's really important is its true job growth. So we're seeing a number of people, uh, you know, a year, two years or so ago, there was a school of thought because of all the stimulus spending and some of the other items that the federal government was providing longer unemployment benefits that people were reluctant to go back into the job market, let alone the public health measures at that time. That has gone through the system, and so people are now coming back into the job market looking for work and generally finding it. But since we're still talking about South Florida's yeah. notoriously low yep. wage economy, yep. the other just as
0: important question would be, are those jobs paying enough to make it affordable for people <laughs> to keep living here? Going to James James's, James's point. point right, James is absolutely especially right. Especially when we factor in Florida's mushrooming insurance costs. Oh, yeah.
3: See, so you and I speak about that quite a bit. Oh, I yeah. know. Uh, right. And James is absolutely right. I mean, the reason why uh locals are getting priced out and we'll talk about locals and consider define those as people who are you know living and working here full-time they're not snowbirds they're not they don't have second homes or third homes Um, but the general low-wage environment of those hospitality jobs particularly uh, um, uh, has not kept pace with the cost of housing or nor the cost of rental right I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about
0: South Florida's stubbornly high inflation, among other economic factors. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Uh, We have Peter on the line from Little Havana, and uh, one of his big... Uh, concerns here is, as we just mentioned, insurance costs, um, making uh, being a renter better than a homeowner. Mm. Uh, Peter, what it, what specifically do you mean by that?
4: Well, uh, first of all, thank you
3: for having this conversation. I think it's an important one. Um, I, I would maybe take a contrarian approach. Um, I've been down here 30 years, and from what I see, it's much cheaper for me to rent than to own. And what I mean by that, if you take a simple approach, you say your rent should be 1% of what the value of your home is. Uh, generally speaking, like from an investor perspective, there's no way that I could afford to live in the place I'm living in for the rent I'm paying. So I got to wonder, is, is the landlord actually subsidizing me to live here, given this huge spike in insurance prices uh, that, that have come about as a result of champaign uh South, as well as the hurricane last year? It's an interesting perspective, Peter, when you talk about kind of the cost of rental versus the cost of ownership. And certainly as you're renting, you don't have the cost of property taxes. You don't have the direct cost of, of uh, property insurance. But indirectly, renters are paying for that. The landlord is not necessarily going to uh, 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 pay the property taxes him or herself or the insurance him or herself. It's going to be subsidized uh, b- by the renter. It's going to be kind of an imputed cost into that rental. But I think the other point Peter that you you could consider is how uh influential uh how real are these shelter inflation numbers that Tim and I have been talking about here. So, you know, th- this this shelter number, this inflation number that we talk about comes from a question that's asked this way. If someone were to rent your home, how much do you think it would rent for? Now, Tim, I don't know about you, but I know my home would probably rent for a lot more than my mortgage payment yeah. is oh, no. today because I've been in the house for I, 10 I, I've years. Been and told, you've been in, I've been told that about right. my own house. Yeah. And so would I I probably wouldn't be able to afford to rent my own home right now. Yeah. But I, but the mortgage payment is considered an investment and is not considered part of the inflationary number. So mm-hmm. these inflation numbers are you know, as much uh, real as they are academic and important.
0: But are there other factors that are also keeping inflation high in our region i mean i keep hearing for example that food especially eating out is a big culprit as well as things like utilities healthcare costs and as you point up in in your your essay this this week revved up consumer spending
3: revved up consumer spending and and some of that's also driven by other pieces of uh, uh of disinflation so lower gas prices lower airfares encourages tourists right. to come to Florida and that puts more demand for services here mm-hmm. yes food food out of homes so or restaurants mm-hmm. th- those those price increases compared to a year ago are higher here in Miami than they are overall for the nation yeah. uh, the cost of uh, um, of uh, uh, new cars, is still growing but the place where we are seeing some relief used car prices for instance are down quite a bit um so uh, you know and then there's that insurance component that uh, still remains a real sap of consumer spending energy these
0: are all great econ 101 dot connecting but but tom i want to go back to something i mentioned a little earlier interest rates Mm -hmm. inflation is coming down nationally but would dropping interest rates again as a result just exacerbate the inflation we haven't yet tamed here in South Florida. You spoke this week with Atlanta Federal Reserve President Rafael Bostic, uh, whose region includes Florida. What did he tell you about handling that balancing act for regions like ours?
3: Yeah, the Federal Reserve is um, really not interested in cutting interest rates at this time. Uh Uh, They've been pretty explicit about that. In fact, the bond market is pricing in a 96% chance the Fed is going to increase its interest rate when it meets later on this month. That's not something that President Bostic of the Atlanta Bank thinks is really necessary. In fact, here's what he told us earlier this week.
4: I'm comfortable being patient, giving more time to see how our policy plays out.
3: So he thinks, Tim, that uh, interest rates are high enough now and will continue to slow inflation um without any more rate hikes so he's he's cautioning patients now he does not have a vote on interest rates this year the way the federal reserve system works Ah, he's an alternate member of this voting committee Mm -hmm. so perhaps he's a little bit freer to express this opinion Um, But in addition to battling inflation, the Fed is also fighting for its reputation these days. Because remember transitory? Remember that word Uh in economics, right? (laughs) It was just a couple years ago the Federal Reserve talked about inflation as transitory. Well, clearly Mm -hmm. that wasn't the case. It got caught on the backside of it. It was criticized for acting uh, too timidly and too slowly. And so instead, it really wants to show that it is an inflation-fighting machine. Um, And the bond market is not considering rate cuts until maybe sometime the spring of next year, which frankly is like trying to assess the World Series chances of the Marlins right now. Hopeful, sure, Mm -hmm. but certain, far from it. So despite our stubbornly
0: high inflation in South Florida, and and the rest of Florida for that matter, you still see a
3: pretty positive economic prognosis here? There's a lot of of, uh, tailwinds for Florida at this point, right? I mean, um, consumer spending is still very strong. There's a little bit of Florida fatigue when it comes to tourism. We're seeing some of that Mm -hmm. with leisure travel. Um, There's some politics and policy concerns on the edges of convention travel. We've seen some conventions uh, not decide to come to Florida because of policy or political concerns. Um, uh, uh, We've seen continued in-migration for Florida, that has certainly been beneficial as well. But I think one of the headwinds that is unknown right now is the new immigration law in Florida. Right. Anecdotally, uh, I've heard from... The effect
0: uh, it could have on agriculture, construction, absolutely. tourism. Right. Even good. healthcare, right? Home yeah. healthcare and those types mm-hmm. of
3: things. And so you know, that could drive up uh, some additional costs and be a bit of a break on the Florida economy. But finally, Tom, I want to end on a bit of a prescriptive note here.
0: South Florida's high inflation rate versus a falling inflation rate for the rest of the country seems to indicate that there are just some things about the sunshine economy that aren't
3: sustainable. What do you think needs to change about the, the economy here to correct that? Well, I think it gets down to something that, that James spoke about, which mm-hmm. is can the locals, can people who live here full time, work here full time, continue to afford to live here full time? And that yeah. gets really to a housing cost and insurance cost, healthcare cost, transportation costs. And there it's a balancing act between the cost of of the service or the asset uh and the income that people can earn from the industries that are represented here.
0: Right.
3: Tom Hudson is WLRN's Senior Economics Editor. Tom, thanks as always. Terrific to be with you, Tim. Thanks.
0: Still to come, an important Miami archaeological site is unearthed in Brickell. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're accustomed to calling Miami a young city, a place that doesn't offer a lot of modern history, let alone ancient history. But at the turn of this century, downtown Miami, Brickell Avenue to be precise, discovered it was home to one of the most significant archaeological finds in North America. Known as the Miami Circle, it's a 2,000-year-old site replete with artifacts built by the the indigenous Tequesta tribe. Now archaeologists have unearthed evidence of a larger Tequesta City near that same location at the mouth of the Miami River. Artifacts there, as well as building postholes, grave sites, and human remains, could be as many as 7,000 years old. But since this is brickle, efforts to protect the site are running up against projects to develop it. This week, Miami's Historic Preservation Board unanimously approved temporary protection— But as the Miami Herald's Andres Viglucci wrote, we may be in for quite a tussle here. Should Miami make this major archaeological site a preservation priority? How important is this sort of history to a young city like ours? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Andres Vigalucci, the Herald's urban affairs reporter, has done stellar coverage of this story and joins me now. Andres, welcome to the South Florida Roundup.
4: Thank you. How are you?
0: Fine, thanks. I know you started reporting on the new, larger Tequesta archaeological site back in April, but can you remind us what archaeologists have found there and how they found it?
4: uh it really they've been digging for for two years uh but it's been very much under the radar until uh some independent archaeologists and and the Herald really focused in starting January February right uh this this it was known for a long time that there would be some archaeological finds there uh This this whole area on both banks, north and south on the Miami River has has been known for a long time to have been the site of Tequesta and perhaps earlier settlement. Uh, I think what no one really expected was the richness of the finds on this site uh, and the well-preserved state of of a lot of the artifacts and other things. Now,
0: does this in effect reveal some sort of a Tequesta municipal capital
4: as it was? yeah it, it, it effectively it, it was a town it, it's now believed that at its height which was maybe two thousand years ago or so uh there were several thousand uh tribes who lived in this place now the tequesta did travel around uh there were hunters and gatherers they did not have agriculture but this was uh unexpectedly uh, a pretty settled settled place as it turns out with the Miami Circle believed to have been kind of a ceremonial right. mm-hmm. center. Uh, and then with, uh, you know, living neighborhoods, if you will, and different uh, different facilities, even to the point where they may have had raised uh, walkways, because, of course, this area used to flood regularly. Right. And and so it, it was long known that this was an archaeological zone. And so under City of Miami development and zoning rules, basically, if you want to develop in this area, you are legally as a de- private developer, you're legally obligated to fund an archaeological exploration. So that is hire archaeologists and start looking to see what may be there.
0: Right.
4: In, in this case, related group, of course, the you know the probably the biggest condo developer in Florida, uh, bought the old customs building and the uh, office building at 444 Brickell, where the Capitol Grill is. So right. people may know it for yeah. that reason. Uh, and, and this was several years ago, but the plan eventually developed to build three towers on these two properties. Uh, once they were ready to develop, they were again obligated to start, start excavating and they hired uh, the archaeological uh, conservancy, which is headed by Bob Carr, who's a veteran guy who discovered the Miami Circle and proved, or you know, with, with other researchers uh, its significance. And what they started to find was pretty amazing. Um, In terms of, again, thousands and thousands of artifacts, you know, fragmentary, but uh, nonetheless significant. Some stuff that had never been found before. Some basically um, extinct animal uh, fragments as well. And uh, incredibly, I'm told, even pieces of rope and organic materials like that, that normally don't, you know, don't get preserved. Uh, and, And so... It's been really kind of opening up a whole window into the history of settlement in this area. Right. In I addition, mean, yes, go the, ahead.
0: The, the structures and artifacts found this, this time could date back as far as 7000 years ago. I mean, more than three times older than what was found at the Miami Circle site. You reminded us in one article you wrote that that takes us back to, quote, the earliest days of civilization on this planet. So what does it tell us about indigenous life on this continent that perhaps we didn't know before and and that might change the way we look at Native America?
4: Well, it it certainly relates to this particular site. Now, uh, these are spearheads that you're referring to. They're stone spearheads. And, uh, you know, they were definitely found on the site. Uh, they're definitely around six, 000, seven thousand years old. No one, no one is questioning that. Now, um, similar materials of this age have been found in South Florida before. Uh so that by itself is not remarkable. What's remarkable is that they're at this site.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, which may suggest that the settlement of the site, which is long known to date back to two thousand twenty-five hundred years may go back even further. Mm-hmm. Now, I- exactly how that that will be fleshed out is yet to come because the, the sort of the final reports and the findings that have been released so far under the public process, um, you know, have been partial. And mm-hmm. so it we have yet to see exactly was there continuous settlement. Uh, you know, there's already been some public debate between bob carr who's leading this this excavation and independent archaeologists from the university of miami um you know as to whether these represent a continuous settlement or whether they there was some interruption or as bob carr suggested in a recent public hearing that perhaps the cast themselves found these ancient spearheads and saved them or collected hmm. them in some way
0: well either way how important is it then for Miami to be an exemplary steward of this site, especially when you consider that history is not exactly something Miami has been
4: known for. Right, this is a surprise for a lot of people. Um, And now what were the archeologists and the specialists may have known, I think the broader public did not. And when when we did our first um, big story in February, uh, it got a lot of attention across the country. I think people are really fascinated by this because there's a certain idea of Miami as you said in the introduction that it's a young place a new place and yet we find that just under the surface I mean you just dig a few inches into the ground and these ancient artifacts start coming up and um you know human remains which um of course have to be very respectfully and carefully treated sure but it really shows um How this has been a a center of civilization for a very long time, uh, which might surprise some of those people, you know, sunning themselves on Miami Beach.
0: (laughs) I'm Tim Padgett. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. We're talking about efforts to preserve the major new archaeological site in downtown Miami. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. So, Andres, that brings us to the seemingly inevitable South Florida controversy here, archaeology versus development. The new Tequesta site, like the old one, lies on one of Miami's most valuable residential and commercial zones, as you mentioned earlier, Brickell Avenue. And one of Miami's largest construction firms, as you mentioned, the related group, is developing that property. How is all of this being reconciled? What sort of compromises have been made
4: so far? it's a been a very interesting process um you know I think neither related nor the city uh wanted to draw a lot of attention to the site while this excavation was going on however there is a process where there have to be public reports and uh, what happened is that as more and more archaeologists archeolo- were hired from around the country to work on this I mean there have been a hundred people at at certain points working wow on this excavation, in in plain sight though, surrounded by a fence, you can't see it at street level. But people from surrounding buildings have been watching this go on for a while. Uh, and and when the independent archaeologists started looking at this and realizing the extent of this, they went to the city's preservation board in January, and said, "Look, what what you have here is really extraordinary, is really significant because it really broadens our understanding of how extensive this this uh." You know indigenous civilization has been in in this spot and and the board uh to its credit uh responded and immediately started it's sort of a legalistic process but it's it will be very important uh where they started studying um this location for protection as an archaeological zone and the city does have power to do that and has fairly broad powers. But to declare it an archaeological zone takes several steps. And that's what they're going through right now. They're going through a series of hearings uh, to determine, you know, what kind of protection the site needs. Right. And this and, and this
0: week, Miami's Historic Preservation Board did vote unanimously to grant the Tequesta archaeological site protection, but it's temporary. And you mentioned that in theory, the board could eventually block development on that
4: brickle parcel as a result. But where do things go from here? Well, that's unlikely. I mean, everybody is being realistic about this and, and related obviously has significant property rights here as well. So there, as you mentioned, there's here's the clash that we've dealt with in different ways before the Miami Circle. When that came up many years ago, land was cheap and the state and county were basically able to buy it from a developer, stop the development, and create the park and, and national landmark that's there today. Uh, north of the river, many years later, another couple of circles were found, another fairly extensive site uh, at the site of the Met Miami uh, development where there's now Whole Foods, cinemas, some other things. They were required on, uh, under significant litigation by date heritage trust which which is a private group they came to an agreement to save some of that now date heritage is saying uh met miami has not lived up to all its its pledges that's still underway but that was a very conflictive process at that point so here we come now uh you know to 2023 related has this big plan um they were basically Let's be frank. Dragged before the preservation board, somewhat unwillingly, right. to a hearing where uh, the chairman and founder George Perez, for the first time, spoke publicly about this thing. Now, related had repeatedly declined to speak to the media, except for very cursory written statements that they issued. Right. Well, finally, so, uh, yes.
0: I, we just in the minute we have left, finally, yes. Andres, I just wanted to ask you, can we perhaps look at this from the perspectives of that old real estate saw location, location, location? Yes. I mean, does it make sense that the Tequestas and the related group would both see that property at the mouth of the Miami River as a prime place to build?
4: Well, of course, it's it's on the water, and and water is very important to human beings and to human settlement. And the Tequesta use the water for food and transportation, and you know the condo buyers and the apartment dwellers that related will bring and want to be near the water too.
1: Right.
4: Uh, and so there's a contest for that, and right. that has yet to play out. Related will have to now provide a plan. We'll see what they offer to do okay. to preserve and exhibit some of these finds.
1: Mm-hmm. Which
4: well, arguably could could benefit, uh, you know, their residents may be interested in this as well.
0: Well, thank you. Andres Viglucci is the Miami Herald's Urban Affairs reporter. Andres, thanks as always. Certainly. Finally on the Roundup, take a second to enjoy this MLB Network call of this home run by Miami Marlins second baseman Luis Araes a few weeks ago.
3: Thirty stays put. This one in the air. Out toward right. His third homer of the year.
0: Before the All-Star break this week, Luis Araez's batting average was 383. If he keeps slugging like that, he could finish the year hitting 400. How huge would that be? No major league player has done it since Ted Williams in 1941. Rice is a big reason the Marlins are having one of their best seasons ever, the second-best record in the National League. That's thanks in no small part to the smart strategizing of their general manager, Kim Ng, the first woman and first Asian American to hold that job in Major League Baseball. In short, the Marlins should be sparking the same excitement here that the Heat and the Panthers recently did. And yet, attendance at Marlins' home games this year is the lowest in the National League. The Marlins start a week-long road trip tonight, but they return home next Friday against the Colorado Rockies. There's every reason for fans to return as well. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Ariana Otero. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Katie Munoz is our director of original live programming. Our Director of Enterprise Journalism is Jessica Bakeman. Mateo Sanchez is Digital Editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's Vice President of News. The Vice President of Radio and Show's Technical Supervisor is Peter J. Maers. Richard Ives answered the phones. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, Obrigado. WLRN Public Media.